Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Sari Veller, a yoga teacher and yoga therapist in Miami. Sari recounts how a cancer diagnosis at the age of 19 and the challenges of the cancer treatments create a cascade of issues ranging from an eating disorder to addiction. With candor and thoughtful insight, she shares how these immense and at times life-threatening challenges forced her to find grace within herself amid the grief a grace that she now uses as she helps others. Please welcome Sari Veller. Welcome to Phoenix Tales. I always start the show off by asking one question, and the question that I ask is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the shape of your life? I would definitely say um, my cancer diagnosis and also my eating disorder and all the co-occurring addictions that have come along with that. I think those two things are major in reshaping my life. And I would also say becoming a mom (laughs) is a big one as well. So can we go back to your cancer diagnosis? What type of cancer was it? When were you diagnosed? What stage was it? Just give us a little bit more background so we have an understanding. Sure. Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 19 years old. And I believe I was diagnosed at a stage two and it's been, it was varying um, stages throughout the course um, of the treatment, but uh, pretty par for the course treatment, radiation, chemotherapy, and all the, you know, fun (laughs) tests that go along with it and diagnostics like bone marrow biopsy and all that fun stuff. But a very, um, very tough pill to swallow at 19 and being in college and then the eating disorder also looming in the background the whole time. So was it that you'd already had the eating disorder and you got the cancer diagnosis or did the cancer diagnosis kind of sort of ignite something that was probably latent, but, you know, that you struggled with? Right. I think the eating disorder has been around from a very, very young age. And we're talking about like eight or nine um, years old. I've always uh, struggled with with food and had a very interesting, strange relationship with my own body and appearance. It's something that is also ingrained in part of my family as well. We've all had our struggles, you know, with food and with diet. And I think Things leading up to the diagnosis were starting to rev up as far as the eating disorder. But as soon as, you know, I went through treatment, I think that's when things really just escalated to a a really intense level. Let's go back to when you were diagnosed. So you were in college and you got this diagnosis, which I'm sure was quite shocking. What were the first things that you had to confront, you know, as you were facing this cancer diagnosis and looming cancer treatment to get better? It was a ton of stuff um, for for an age where you're not quite a child and not quite an adult. You're technically an adult, you know, by all, you know, law abiding standards. And it was just um, some really tough decisions as far as what was I going to do with my ovaries because I had to have radiation of 
the pelvis. So I had to go see a fertility specialist at, at 19 years old, which is very odd for a 19 year old to go see a fertility specialist. And how I was going to get through being in college, I was working part time and it was a very difficult time in general for myself and, and my family. My sister was also pregnant at 17 with my nephew. So we had this kind of like um, dichotomy of things going on in the family. We had this impending, you know, situation with me and then this new life coming into the world via my sister. So it was a really challenging time for us uh, as a family in general. Yeah, I was going to ask about the fertility aspect, because I know that for young women, when they do get a cancer diagnosis and they're undergoing treatment, that is of a concern, right? That you could end up infertile at the end of it. So were there things that you did to make sure that you retained your fertility, even at, you know, having to think about it at such a young age? Um, yes and no. There were steps that we went through, but the point became moot. At, at one point, I ended up, you know, having to have treatment in other areas as well. We kind of just plowed forward uh, with the treatment. And I can imagine that being so young and having to face something so dire and life altering as well as physically altering, did that make you grow up faster? And are there aspects of what you learned through that period that still kind of keep you, that is at the center of how you live your life currently? I think parts of me matured incredibly. And I think a lot of parts of me stayed stagnant at that age for a really long time. Even though I matured, I missed out on a lot of things because I was I was having treatment. And I think I spent the next you know 10 years trying to focus all my attention on a really heavy and intense marketing career. But I also at the time worked within the beverage industry, which was a lot of fun. I worked within events and I kind of just tried to live the life that I couldn't live during that period of time. And I think that's where a lot of the issues with me with the eating disorder and addiction really started to kind of rear their ugly head. I wasn't in the best environment uh, to keep me away from being what I refer to as a, a party monster of sorts. There was a lot of maturing that happened, but at the same time, I think when you are battling an eating disorder and an addiction, it's kind of in charge. No matter how much you want to mature, it was always at the helm and in control and really making a lot of my guiding decisions and principles. I think more of my maturing and growth came after I went to treatment for the eating disorder. So let's go back to the eating disorder because you made reference to it a number of times. Can you be more specific? Was it anorexia or bulimia or a combination of both? It's been a combination of both um, for a really long time. There were periods that in my early age where it was more body dysmorphia, really obsessing over food, binge eating. And then I started probably toying with binging and purging around 13, 12, 13 years old. And then it was a very large kind of binge and purge cycle around the time of, of my, my treatment. And then there were points where it's kind of vacillated between bulimia and anorexia. There were points where I, I was severely underweight and but still engaging in in purging activities. I would say heavier on the the bulimia side than than anything else. So that's interesting. So even though you were undergoing your cancer treatment, which is incredibly taxing on a healthy body, you're saying that you were also engaging in this pattern of behavior of binging and purging while undergoing treatment at the same time? 
Yes, there were times where I didn't have to binge and purge at all because the medication that I was taking at the time would just make me purge in general. You know, like a lot of the chemotherapy treatments, as you know, are really difficult on the body. So there were days where I wasn't able to eat. The binging and purging activity came during the period where I was on a lot of steroids. With cancer treatment, there are a lot of medications that you will take that whether you are doing anything to your body or not, your body is going to change. I was barely eating struggling in general with food, keeping food down because of the treatment. And here is my my face, you know, widening and changing and, and me gaining weight when I'm barely eating because of steroids. So I think, you know, towards the tail end of the treatment, that's where I started to pick up more with the binging and purging because I felt like no matter what I was doing, I still had this appearance of gaining weight. So it just became this kind of compulsion to get back to where I used to be or where I wanted to be. It was a messy time. (laughs) And you said that you were still in school. And how was the impact of that? I can imagine for most 19-year-olds who, let's just be frank, they're not the most mature human beings. Some are, but, you know, the vast majority are not. How did you cope with sort of the, you know, sort of the social stigma of having cancer at your age amongst your peers? It was really, really difficult. I I, I do consider that period in my life to be very traumatic. Uh, People, you know, sometimes don't realize that, you know, a a trauma doesn't need to necessarily be a a car accident or an act of violence. It can be, you know, an experience or a period of time where you're just not able to function. During that period of time, I, I started to look obviously very different than my peers. I started to lose my hair. I was very self-conscious of the way I looked and my body. I had a fort inserted in my body. So I had this thing sticking out of um, of my my chest. So it was a very awkward time socially. And young adults can be mean. I think the world has grown and we're a lot more conscious about how we treat each other. But it was a difficult time. So post-college, you got out. You obviously got sort of the you're free of cancer diagnosis and you started to embark on your own life. And you said that, and it it totally makes sense that you would kind of revert to trying to recapture the youth and the experiences that any typical 19, 20 year old were they were having and you had not. So how long did that period last? And then you said that you ended up in rehab. So can you give us sort of a flesh out that story of you being the party monster and then ending up in rehab. I spent, you know, probably the next 20 years within the marketing industry, working within events and the beverage industry. There's a lot of pressure when you work within that industry. All of the events that I ran were basically for liquor uh, companies (laughs) or beverage companies. So it's very hard to not be around alcohol. And when eating uh, disorders occur, very rarely do they occur in a vacuum without other co-occurring conditions. If you look up some of the statistics, um, you know, as far as anorexia and bulimia, usually alcoholism or other co-occurring mental health conditions um, kind of (laughs) exist and it's very, very prevalent. So I think it was almost like trying to throw anything I could at my own trauma, at my own issues, at my own anger, at my own depression, whatever got me through the night, (laughs) Uh, so to speak. So that could be drinking, that could be drugs, that could be the eating disorder. But there was, there came a point right around age 30 where I I wasn't in good physical shape. I had an alcohol-induced seizure at one point. I had had some gastrointestinal issues. I had experienced a a Mallory White's tear in my esophagus. 
I was just in bad, bad, bad shape cardiovascularly. I was not in good shape. I was severely underweight. And I remember being in my office one day and, you know, I had a very scheduled binge and purge (laughs) plan. And I went to have my lunch and purge it up. I had this plan down to a science. And when I went to purge, the toilet was just like covered in red blood. And I just said to myself, this is it. I can't, I cannot live like this. There has to be a better way. And very much me putting myself in treatment, my family really didn't know how to deal with this. It. It's very foreign in a Cuban family for an eating disorder uh, to pop up. They didn't know anything about eating disorders. So it was a real big educational process as well. But there was just a lot of um, a lot of turmoil in, in me getting there and, and getting help. But I did. I'm very fortunate to be able to go to a treatment center that really focused on eating disorders, co-occurring conditions. And I had some really incredible modalities, which included yoga, uh, as far as, you know, their somatic treatment for their patients. So I'm forever thankful for that experience, which I did three times. <laughs> but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question was first, uh, how, how long were you in treatment and how long were you in the subsequent treatment programs that you had to go back to? It was a long, the first time around, it was about a year of being in and out. It's when you go in, especially for eating disorder and being in the the physical state that I was in, there's a a period of stabilization, refeeding, just don't go into a treatment center and start eating food. You know, it's a very slow process of working your way from very tiny meals to larger meals, a lot of medical coordination to make sure your vitals are okay. I was in there a couple of months the first time and as soon as I got back out into the world, I, I lasted a very short period of time and went right back in. And it, it was really, really hard. It was, you know, probably three times in total as, as an inpatient, several IOP programs. And, um, you know, it, it was not an easy road. And I think recovery or the notion of recovery from anything, be it an eating disorder substance abuse, whatever it is, it's a lifelong process. It's not just, you know, I'll go to treatment, have her, have the number four recovered <laughs> or the number four come out and just be, you know, go, go to meetings or whatever support um, system you choose afterwards and, and just being okay. To, to this day, it, it's still a process. I still struggle when I see myself certain times or when I'm in a social setting or when I'm posed with you know, certain temptations. It's a lifelong process. Well, I was going to ask, so we've already had one other guest who sort of talked openly about her eating disorder. And what we all understand is that you're right. Once you get technically, quote unquote, better, it's a continual process of having to fight that inner voice, whether it's the inner voice of criticism or the inner voice that is criticism saying that you're not good enough, you look terrible, blah, blah, blah. So what tools do you have now in order to kind of quiet that part of your psyche to a place where you can just focus on the reality of who you are as opposed to this notion of who you want to be? There's a lot of, you know, misunderstood information or notions surrounding disorders. And it's just really Food is just one of the many locuses of control. Um, there are several, but I think what I have learned throughout treatment in the years after being in IOP programs, being in therapy, 
um, is that for me, a lot of the discovery process, a lot of the healing process has come with a lot of not just top up tools like talk therapy, but somatic tools like yoga and movement. I got into running in my 20s and my 30s. So I think really understanding that those integral parts of my recovery is being able to connect with my body. I often say that if I'm not able to practice yoga or run or move, that I get into this kind of state where I just need to, I need to be able to do that. And so have you been able to kind of parse out for yourself the impact of really the cancer diagnosis and the treatments that you underwent at such a young age and how that thread might be still carried with you today in shaping the way you view things or more importantly, how you view perhaps your own self. We're often shocked when I say this. The cancer treatment for me was, I don't want to say easier because it wasn't physically easier by any stretch of the imagination or there's a lot that goes on with an eating disorder. An eating disorder for me was a tool to survive and stay alive and stay alive through a lot of trauma that I experienced, including, um, including cancer treatment. So in a lot of ways, I look at cancer as really what, what was more of a physical experience for me at the time. But then I coming back to work within the field of, you know, cancer treatment and working in the capacity of, of teaching and working with patients and doing yoga therapy. I've had to sometimes sit in the same rooms and be in the same places where I've had treatment <laughs> and work in, in the same place where I've had treatment as well. And things have really come full circle. And now sometimes is when I'm really starting to process things that happened almost 20 years ago. And I'm starting to slowly unravel the threads and it's been a process, but I'm thankful every day that I work, you know, kind of within the same <laughs> realm and universe. It's, it's inadvertently become part of my healing process. It's interesting because I know for most people when they're facing a dire situation, there is that, you know, existential screaming of why me? And then the other portion of that, especially if you're facing an illness, is to kind of turn that toward yourself, right? More importantly, to your body, meaning there's a sense that your body has failed you on some level. So have you been able to figure out for yourself, you know, get beyond that question of why me? And then more importantly, getting beyond that blaming of the diagnosis and your illness on your own body? I guess I did go through the why me phase, but I think I've been lucky enough to start in embarking on studying trauma that, you know, for the past several years and understanding that sometimes when we go through things that are traumatic, they can have a severe impact on our body and things like cancer, gastrointestinal issues, asthma. Uh, the more I research and work closer to trauma, the more that I understand that this could have been a physical manifestation of a lot of the things that have happened to me. So for me, the focus has been a lot more about not looking in through the lens of my body betrayed me, but my body had to go through this situation because maybe it was in so much excruciating pain from a lot of other things that had happened. And that was just the physical manifestation of it. So then moving forward, the same thing with the eating disorder. How do I take that lens and turn it towards a lens of healing and a lens of compassion instead of thinking, why did 
my body betray me or with the eating disorder, why did I betray my body? I, I try to look at it through a completely different lens than a, a body betrayal per se. Trust me, I've had my moments in which I have felt uh, that my body has betrayed me. But instead of looking back with it, we have a choice, right? We can look back at things and say, oh, you know, why me? But I often say that everything that has happened to me was necessary, 150% necessary. It is, these experiences have been my teachers, my guides. I would not be the person who's talking to you right now had I not gone through those experiences. So I know that one of the other aspects of specifically eating disorder is that it's a need to have a sense of control. And the more that you feel your life is out of control, the more the need to control the one thing you can control, which is to not eat or eat and purge, right? Mm -hmm. So can you sort of pinpoint what might have caused that need within you? And I know you said it started at a very young age, but I was yes. wondering if there was a moment in time that you could, that had sort of crystallized itself as like, ah, that's when it really started. I grew up in a household with um, two immigrant parents that um, came here from Cuba. My mom at a very young age and my father uh, as a teenager. And they experienced not the easiest integration into life in the U.S. Um, you know, they went through their own traumas. And as, as we know, things get uh, passed down generationally, historically. And, you know, it's, it's not their fault. But I grew up in a house with a lot of turmoil with a lot of angst, with two people that were doing the best that they could. And I still believe that they did the best that they could, but were still suffering and processing through their own stuff. And they, they tried the best they could, but it did have an impact on the way I dealt with things. Children of immigrants don't complain <laughs> about, <laughs> about circumstances and things. They are grateful for the scrap of food on the table, for the clothes on their back. You just put your head down, you go, you do, you achieve. And that's kind of the mindset I kind of took with even cancer treatment and, you know, a, a, mar a marketing career at going to college and everything else was just like, okay, this is just another thing you have to get through. Go, 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 go. But we know you can't face any major life event with just putting your head down and going without processing what's going on emotionally. So I, I think it, it started very, very young in my, my household. And it was just a sense of, I think I've said this, you know, before, maybe another interview, not being able to show emotion. Emotion was not acceptable at all. Happy was acceptable. Uh, you know, content was acceptable. Even anger might have been acceptable. But I was a highly sensitive and emotional child who bottled up everything because that was not being a crybaby or, or, you know, woe is me or pity party or anything that could have been interpreted in that fashion is not what we did in my household. Let's go back to you finally finishing your third sort of stint at in a treatment program. So when you got out, was that the point at which you started to take hold of your life and start to refashion your life in a way that made more sense to you? Yes, definitely. You know, as far as the symptomology of the eating disorder with physically binging and purging and, and my weight and everything else, things started to get much better. And, but there was still psychologically a lot of scar tissue 
I would say I engaged in a lot of relationships that were uh, really unhealthy. I didn't always take the best care of myself. I've always been more comfortable taking care of others. It's been been a process um, to evolve and get my life straightened. We're always a work in progress, WIP. So I think it's kind of evolving. I still think I'm a work, you know, in progress. It brought me to a, a place where I realized what was for me and what wasn't for me and how I needed to start making choices that really made me happy and really made me fulfilled. And sometimes what society prescribes to you as being happy and fulfilled having the nice house, having the nice car, having the 401k, working that corporate job and whatnot. That's not what I wanted. That's what I set out to do to make others happy. But that's not what filled me internally. I think that was the missing kind of gaping part where I finally woke up one day and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I'd been teaching yoga for for a while, for a long time. I think really working in a field of, of healing and helping others that has really been where I've started to align. Uh, how long before you became or made that transition to work in the yoga profession? Well, I started teaching in 2007. I always kind of taught on the back burner, even when I was working, you know, my corporate job and doing marketing. And I was lucky and blessed enough to do my 300-hour training with a yoga therapist. Uh, so a lot of my 300-hour training was basically a yoga therapy uh, training. It's when I started working in more of a therapeutic setting, a yoga therapy sense that I really felt my calling. And I said, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, I'm actually on to something. Then I went and got an oncology certification to be able to teach, you know, within the oncology world. That's where I've kind of, you know, landed between that and teaching um, at an eating disorder treatment center and working with trauma and teaching trauma-informed yoga. It's been a hard transition, uh, fiscally, mentally, all of the above, but I couldn't think of anything else in the world I'd rather be doing as a profession. What sometimes happens, I think, for those of us who work in this field of wanting to make others feel better, a lot of it being, you know, based on our own personal experience of whatever it is that we had to overcome, right? And I am imagining that you draw from your own experience quite readily and quite often when you are in that position, either as a yoga therapist in the cancer setting or as the yoga therapist in the eating disorder setting. But there's always a fine line between taking that mantle and not allowing your own need to heal, right? Sort of color your ability to do the job. So how do you kind of make that delineation for yourself, right? Because we all admit we're, as you said, a work in progress. And we are all of us still working through our own individual issues. And yet in the profession in which we, you know, take that mantle of being a yoga therapist, we're there to serve the person in front of us. It can be challenging. So have you figured out, have you found ways to be able to delineate you know, your healing versus really doing the work at hand. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I think um, one of the first patients I ever worked with at the treatment, at the cancer treatment center, I had mentioned that I had been through treatment. And within a second, 
what kind of treatment did you have? How did it go for you? Uh, what was, you know, how long did it take you? And then I said, oh my God, no, 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 no. This was about three or four years ago. And from that day forward, I, I kind of vowed to myself that, you know, you, you're not going to mention anything that you've been through. Um, I rarely, rarely have ever mentioned anything, whether it's in the eating disorder setting or in the cancer setting, because my, my experience is my experience. It doesn't have to be projected onto another human being. What, what it does allow me to have is to create that space, that vessel of, of compassion and understanding. I often refer to it as, as the bridge. I can lay the bridge from me, from myself towards the other person and let things just unfold along the bridge. I'm much more effective at being able to hold space with compassion and with understanding and without projecting my own stuff onto the other person, my own expectations, or even my own wants for the other person. That's great. So I wanted to go back to your own cancer experience. Being 19, I'm sure mortality was not something you worried about. And I can imagine even with the cancer diagnosis, a part of you as though you were going to beat it. Have you been able to realize the possibility of your own mortality in the sense of like now when you look back, you say to yourself, wow, this could have ended up very differently for me. And have you been able to kind of process that in terms of what that means for you now and going forward? Um, yeah, I, I often when I, I have friends also that have been through cancer treatment and, you know, within the circle that I, I work in, a lot of us have gone through it and have chosen to come back and, and come into a giving profession, whether that's art therapy or music therapy or being a yoga therapist. I refer to it as being asleep and then now being awake. Anything can end our lives. It doesn't necessarily need to be cancer uh, or something, just the ability to understand that I can walk through life highly awake now and that every day is just this beautiful gift. And I see it over and over again. I see more life and more understanding and more just this awake nature in a lot of the patients that I work with because they get it. They get that tomorrow is not guaranteed to us and they will fight for it today. So I try to keep that same kind of ocular lens when I look at things that, yeah, anything can take us from this world. But how do we choose to go about life today, even on the crappy days where things don't work out the way we want it to work out? What can we take away from that? Even in the worst case scenario, how can we you know, shift our perspective? Because not everything is always guaranteed to us. That's uh, a great place to end. So I'm going to ask you one last question. And because you guys have been listening to the podcast. People have been waiting for this question, so I'm changing it up. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> because I want the I want the aspect of surprise to be still there. So, if you could go back in time and pick a historical figure, someone from the past that you could spend an afternoon with, who would that person be? Oh, goodness. I would choose my parents as little people. I, I would go back to my parents when they were little people and chat with them. Because like you asked before, you know, there's always a point in our lives where things kind of take a tipping and a turning point. And to be able to understand that 
and what they've gone through. You know, they're a lot more closed about the things that they've they've been through. But just to understand and know and to heal, I think I'm a strong wanting to heal intergenerationally. And, you know, hopefully my healing will bring that to my son. But I, I'll answer it the same. My parents, when they were when they were children, when they were little people. And is there one specific question that you've always wanted to ask them that you would have the opportunity to ask them at if you were able to do that? I'd want to know who and what hurt them. You know, it's, it's very hard for them to talk about the hurts of their past. They're in their 60s and their 70s. And it, it's like a vault. <laughs> it's like a tight, tight, tight vault about their experience. I, You know, that's, I think, the one thing that I hope a lot of people can take away the more honest and raw conversations that we have, like the conversation that we're having now, the more we we not only heal ourselves, but we heal each other. There's a certain healing aspect to being open and raw and vulnerable. And I think it's a, a beautiful and healing thing for all of us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. And then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.